0: all right well welcome to another episode of the rethinking faith podcast as always i'm one of your hosts josh patterson and with me today is the legend the legend the one and only marty frederick what's up mr marty the legend frederick
1: and i thought you were going to introduce bob marley or something like that I'm oh that would have been cool like and bob marley is here I'm like what how did you do that man that's like Totally like outside the realm of, you know, I don't know, like our understanding of possibility. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll make it happen. It's rethinking faith. We can yeah, do whatever Yeah, that's right. we want. I guess
1: yeah. so. Yeah. Well, Josh, one of your one of your buddies just got um suspended, man. Oh in yeah, trouble.
0: Tom Wilson. Yeah, he's in big trouble. Yeah, but it's just because it's Tom Wilson they suspended him. Because he's but, a goon. no Foss. <laughs> nah. Tom Wilson is the future captain of the Washington Capitals. You've heard it here first, folks. After Ovechkin's done, Wilson will be the new captain. Wilson is an elite goal scorer. He's a solid player. And he also is a freaking freight train. And so if you get in your way, you're gonna go night night is basically the gist of it.
1: Well and here's but here's the thing: the, the caps were just in the news. I don't know about a week ago for Ovechkin letting out, like letting off on a guy, not fighting after uh, like a dude because he felt he was too like new to the league and wanted to like give him a pass and like not have him deal with that. Mm-hmm. So like, that helped. But then like the opposite happened where like, <laughs> 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 the cats were in the news for the exact opposite reason, man.
0: That's yeah, like a Tom Wilson got in two fights in that game, but they there was no call on the ice at all for that hit. Mm. And it was so it was it was brutal. But like it wasn't boarding, which my confusion is the league referred to it as boarding when he got suspended. But it was not a boarding play. Like his back wasn't to Tom. Tom didn't leave his feet. It just like the way the play happened, there was the real problem was his head bounced off the glass, which is I don't want that for anybody,
1: Um, especially not
0: myself, you know. Yeah. So, Can we
1: just blame it on COVID then? It's because sure. of COVID.
0: Yeah. COVID-19 is the reason Tom Wilson has been suspended.
1: They're being, they're being soft because of COVID. So that's what we're going to say.
0: Yeah. I'll, I'll go for that. <laughs> yeah. But then once oh, So, so since he got suspended, that's negative news. I'll give some positive news and then we'll go ahead and, and bring in our guest here. So we don't have to keep them waiting too long. But uh, my personal hockey season started back up again. So we had our second game last night and we won. So did you get? Exciting.
1: Did you get suspended for any, like questionable calls and you know anything like that?
0: Yeah, I did. I fought like three people, <laughs> boarded a few folks, threw my stick, flipped off the goalie. You know, it was just a real rough. This night is funny
1: me. because Josh is not a big dude.
0: <laughs> hey, don't ha- don't give away my secrets, man. Come on. <laughs> what if we have listeners that envision me as like a six foot four, two twenty five, solid muscle? Sure, go yeah. Or big beard, actually, long hair.
1: Yeah. They could believe all of those things.
0: Yeah. We'll go for it. we <laughs> will never know. That's the beauty of podcasting. That's right. Sweet. All right, man. Well, perhaps we should bring our guest into our conversation and practice good hospitality. What do you Correct. think? I think so. <laughs> all right. Cool. With us today is RT Mullins. Ryan, how are you doing, man? Doing all right. Good. Good. <laughs> So, yeah. Thanks for hanging out with us today and putting yeah. up with our nonsense. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. Well, before
1: we before we hop into the topic for today, Ryan, we just want to get some background information. So, just uh, to start off with, can you just tell us who you are and what you do?
2: Yeah. So, uh, so I'm Dr. Ryan Mullins, and I am a philosophical theologian. I'm a, currently am at the University of Helsinki's Collegium for Advanced Studies. Which the way that uh, a Collegium, the way that they talk about themselves is they're sort of like a paradise on earth for academics because you've just got all this freedom to just do your research and write and you don't have any other responsibilities. So so yeah, it's a it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty sweet deal. So I'm just working on my, my third book at the moment. Um, so I'm writing a new book on God and time uh, to follow up from my first book on God and time. And then working nice. on um, some stuff on God and emotion to follow up on the book that I just published on God and emotion as well.
1: Great. That's awesome. I, I've always wanted to visit Finland. Uh, it's seems like a wonderful, like a cool place to be.
2: It's yeah. It's it's very beautiful. It's very cold at the moment. Um, yeah. But but yeah. No. It's 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 a really it's a really cool place. And of all the European countries I've been in, this one feels the most amenable to Americans. Like just kind of their mindsets a bit more fits. I, just, I don't know. It just fits a little bit better with like American mindsets, uh, which oh. was a bit difficult when I transitioned from moving here from after living in the UK for ten years and and going. What? what oh, I have to talk the way an American talks now. Okay, I can do that. And oh, I have to think like an I can think like an American again. I can do that. That's cool. This works. All right. Good.
1: <laughs> nice. Um, well, so then, being that you're in Finland, um, I guess this question will fall in line. Um, who is your favorite ice hockey team?
2: See, I don't actually like follow ice hockey or any sports for that matter. And I know, like, I listened to your show before, and I know you always like start out with like talking about different sports, and I'm like, I got nothing. I got nothing at all. Like. <laughs> Like my wife, like really likes football, like soccer, not like American football. Um, because I had I had to explain the rules of American football to her, which was really difficult because I was like, I don't follow sports, and now I have to explain sports to you. Like, okay, um, so yeah, no, I I I got nothing when it comes to sports.
1: Nice. Well, I when I was in college, uh, our hockey team uh, was one of the bigger, like it was the only D one sport our college had. Um, but a lot of the players were from Finland. And so mm. you started, and a lot of the people that were up there were from Finland. So like that was the place I learned that uh, sauna is not the proper way to say that. You're supposed to say sauna. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that was I, I didn't I didn't know that until I was up there. But so it was an interesting place. But uh, lots of really cool uh, cultures kind of intermingling in the same place. So yeah,
2: yeah, yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah, that's cool. You you should just claim like Finland, the national hockey team, is your favorite. Just yeah, <laughs> there we go. Finland's <laughs> national team or the Washington Capitals. That's oh. all. That's always the the best option mm-hmm. for, for anybody who doesn't know. <laughs> it's a good team to start with. But, Sweet man. Well, one other question we like to ask. Um, our podcast is called Rethinking Faith. And um, I just, I love asking people, what what is the most important aspect of your faith that you personally had to rethink? I mean, the biggest
2: thing for me would be like the nature of God, because it's like... <sighs> I mean that's and that's basically my entire research like trajectory is just trying to figure out what exactly is God like because I started out as like a classical theist and then like even when I was a teenager too I was like like a really hardcore Calvinist uh, and and just over the years constantly rethinking going is this does this actually make sense of reality does this really make sense of what I see in scripture does this make sense of like what it would be to be a perfect being constantly reflecting and changing on, on, on those sorts of things. So yeah, it's, it's been a, like an, just an ongoing process of going, what exactly is God like and what does God want from us?
0: Sweet. Yeah. That's a fun question. Um, and it's a big one and I feel like it's a, <laughs> it's a good one too, cause you can have some, uh, some job security and having to, to think through the question, what is God like? <laughs>
2: You would think, but uh, usually, if you look at your average statement of faith at, um, at different Christian universities or different like denominations in the U.S. or anywhere else really, the doctrine of God is the one that like hardly anything is said about it. Whereas like you know your statement on like baptism or justification by faith or how much you should give for offering, you know like these things have like these long detailed analysis. And then when you get to the doctrine of God, it's like yeah, there's a God and he's like eternal or something or other. You know I don't know. He's doing <laughs> something. He loves. I think. I guess he loves you. Right? <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. That that's uh, that's cool, though, because that's like the one of the questions for me that just kind of like percolates under everything else that I kind of think about. Um, yeah, because I, I started out like classical theism, uh, experimented with Calvinism, but could never really do it. Like uh, this will sound really harsh towards Calvinists, but I feel like I'm too empathetic and relational to be a Calvinist um like it just it never worked for me I just couldn't do it I tried like I understand um I have friends that are cavernous and I get it I can convince you I'm one uh but so then I kind of like drifted into the realm of like open and relational and then like I've dabbled in some like uh process kind of stuff and I'm just I don't know I hang out in open and relational but then I'm always uh willing to try something else so that's that's where it's at yeah. Um, but Yeah. So to uh, today, like you mentioned, you recently put out a cool little book called God in emotion. And so that's, you know, what we wanted to, to talk to you about today. Uh, but before we can do that, we thought that perhaps it might be important to define what we mean when we talk about emotion. So can you kind of fill us in?
2: hmm So the nice way to put it, like if you're like going to preach a sermon, you would say an emotion is a felt evaluation of a situation because it has a nice kind of like ring to it, you know? Um, and so depending on the way you want to preach, you could really like be like, this is a felt evaluation of a situation. And so what an emotion is, it's a mental state, but it involves two different components. So it has what's called a cognitive component and an affective component. And so since it's a felt evaluation, the cognitive aspect of it is it's an evaluation of something. So you see something like uh, in front of you um, and you're like, well, that, that seems pretty cool. And so you're evaluating it as like, it's pretty amazing. Or maybe it's really scary. Uh, maybe it's like a dog that's barking in front of you. And so you're like, ooh, that's, ooh, that's horrifying. And so you evaluate it to be scary. Uh, so you're perceiving the world to be a particular way. You're seeing the world in a particular way and then seeing it as having these different values or disvalues. And then there's something that it feels like to, to make that evaluation. So that's why it's a felt evaluation. So there's something that it's it, like to feel scared when you are perceiving a scary dog, or there's something that it's like to, you know, feel really happy when you're perceiving something that's really amazing, like a new movie or you're listening to a new song or something. So it's an, a felt evaluation of a situation.
1: Yeah. But also Ryan, like, what are some important things to grasp about emotion if we want to have a meaningful conversation about emotions and God?
2: Right. So one of the important things to, to note is that your emotions, like this is going to sound weird because this doesn't really fit with a lot of American culture at the moment, but your emotions can be true or false and they can be rational or irrational. Um, and so here's the idea. So since my emotions are these evaluations, um, if I'm evaluating the situation completely wrong, then my emotions just like way off. And people don't always like that because they don't like, you can't tell me emotion. My emotion is wrong. But then also when you're reading the news or you're watching you know, anything online, people are like, I can't believe you're not outraged by this. And I'm like, so you're telling me that my, my lack of just not caring that like, I've here to say my emotions wrong, uh, in this moment. And so what we're seeing here is we do have this intuitive grasp of, you should be having certain emotions in certain situations. Uh, and, and so here'd be an example of this. So Thomas Aquinas says, a virtuous person is going to be disturbed, deeply disturbed by witnessing something really terrible. So you witness like a really evil event. Uh, you ought to be disturbed because if you're not disturbed, well then maybe something's wrong with you. Maybe you don't like have enough knowledge to know that this was, maybe you, just, you were just really ignorant of the fact that this is a horrible thing you just witnessed. Or maybe there's something kind of wrong with your character that you're just really calloused to what, whatever like really horrible thing you just witnessed. So there's gotta be some kind of fit with your emotion and reality such that you can then say it's true or false. But then from there, you can also say it's rational or irrational because um, sometimes, like, you might have... Some, let's say somebody, like, you're driving in traffic and somebody cuts you off. Well, you might be, like, upset. And, you know, it seems like you've got a right to be upset because they cut you off in traffic. But if you, like, like, all of a sudden, like, start, like, chasing them down and, like, really, just like, like uh, really, like really tailing them really hard and stuff, then you'd be like, well, that's not really the rational thing to do. And you might be overreacting a bit here. Uh, and so you'd be like, you get the emotion right, but the amount intensity of like your emotion, like that's way off. So this is, doesn't seem like rational anymore. So those are different ways you can kind of measure emotions. And so as it relates to God is pretty much everybody wants to say God's perfectly rational and that God knows all things. So his, his his emotions better be fitting reality in the right sort of way.
1: Got it. Yeah, I have an eight-year-old son who is dealing with trying to understand emotion. It's like he he understands the emotion he should feel, but he, just like you were just describing, he, he still has not figured out how to uh, apply the proper response. So someone will do something and he'll scream at them, but then something really serious will happen and he'll kind of like not seem to care. And you're like, man, like you got to figure out, like you got to apply <laughs> the opposites here. <laughs> so right. he, he's working. I mean, he's eight. So, I mean, I feel like, you know, it's not unreasonable for him to be still kind of working through some of that, but yeah. yeah. Um, so then I, I guess the next question would be, um, uh, I guess to have just the the debate about the impassibility of God and the passibility of God. And so for listeners who aren't familiar with that language, can you define those two terms for us?
2: Mm-hmm. So impassibility means three things. So first it is impossible for God to suffer. Like God cannot suffer at all. Uh, so you might think, well, does he get a bit sad sometimes? No, I said no suffering, no suffering whatsoever. Uh, the second thing that impassibility says is God cannot be caused or moved or influenced by anything outside of himself. So nothing about you, um, be it like your good actions or your bad actions, nothing about your value or your character, nothing outside of God can influence God to think or feel or act or be in any way, shape, or form. That still doesn't explain exactly why God can't suffer though, because you could imagine like some being that's just kind of like not influenced by anything outside of himself, but is just in the state of like awful agony or something So there's this third component of impassibility that explains why he can't suffer. And so the third component of impassibility says that God cannot have any emotion that is inconsistent with his perfect rationality, his perfect goodness, and his perfect happiness. And so the happiness is what's doing all the work here. So when you look at the the classical tradition, they'll say that if you want to be really happy, you need to live the good life and you need to be in the right relationship with whatever the greatest good is. Well, God is the greatest good and God's in the right relationship with himself be, you know, being identical to the greatest good. So who, okay, well, he's going to be perfectly happy then. Uh, and so he just can't be, and since he can't be moved by anything out, outside of himself and he's just identical to his own happiness and his own goodness, he's just in the state of pure undisturbed bliss. And so that's why he can't suffer. So that's impassibility. Passibility. They want to go, uh, something's a bit off here. Um, they'll say, you know, God can suffer. And God can be moved and influenced by creatures to various extents. And God can have any emotion that is consistent with his perfect rationality and his perfect goodness, but they're going to deny that God's always in a state of pure, undisturbed happiness. And, and here's why, uh, because they'll, they'll say, when, I, when, when you look at the world, it really is rational to be sad or upset or angry at different points, because if people are sitting, you know, maybe you get a little upset. That's perfectly rational and perfectly good as well. Uh, and and then in further the 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 tradition that says God's passable, they'll typically say that God has empathy. Uh, and we can talk more about empathy in a bit. But they just but the main thing to know at this point is they want to affirm that God has empathy, whereas the impassibility tradition says no empathy whatsoever. Where people within the the, the passibility tradition, they disagree over how much empathy God has, but they want to say empathy is an important feature of, of God's moral goodness. So when God empathizes with you, he can, he can suffer with you to some extent. Whereas impassibility goes, no, no empathy whatsoever. And it would be a horrible, awful thing if God did have empathy. And so they're really, really clear on this.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so where I kind of first uh, came into contact with uh, in this idea of uh, impassibility uh, was a, a pretty famous book called The Crucified God um, by Jürgen Moltmann. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, um, I had been studying theology um, with my Calvinist friends, and they told me I could not read The Crucified God, uh, because then I would have to be an open theist, and because, um, you know, I would have to affirm passibility And so I think they're, they're not quite right there. Um, so, in what what circles do we kind of find uh, these two postures? Just so maybe listeners are trying to figure out, okay, where you know, what tradition do I kind of fall into, um, and does one have to be an open theist in order to affirm passibility?
2: Right. So, passibility you find in pretty much every theological tradition. I mean, it is, it is much more of a modern phenomenon. It really does come into its own in the twentieth century. But you can find Calvinists like John Feinberg, uh, who's Pretty big deal in Calvinist circles, or at least he ought to be. Uh, his systematic theology, uh, called "No One Like Him," uh, is his doctrine of God book. And he's like, passability, it's the biblical view, and it seems to make sense of God's goodness. And, and then he's like, and, and then Feinberg will also get on his uh, soapbox and be like, no one can tell me that I can't be a Calvinist and affirm all this. Um, you know, they just don't know what Calvinism is. And I'm like, all right, okay, fine, fine, whatever you want, Professor Feinberg. Um, and so you can find that, but you can also find that kind of in some thinkers maybe like, kind of like Bruce Ware, uh, and some different people in the Southern Baptist tradition, like Rob Lister, they want to affirm some kind of passability, find different people who are Pentecostal, um, like, uh, Daniel Costello, who still wants to affirm that God knows the future. So it's not an open theism, but he says God's passable William Lane Craig. Uh, I mean, he's a Molinist, so he's definitely not an open theist, but he's like passability, obviously, but then like, yeah, all your open theists, um, like William Hasker and Clark Pennock, then all your people who are doing like uh, some kind of process theism or panentheism or relational theology, a lot of them are affirming, uh, eco-feminists, they're affirming this. So passability you find in a bunch of different models of God, a bunch of different theological uh, systems. So it's not like it's isolated to just one like theological system. It's, I find it like all over the place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's super helpful. Um, and in your book too, you use like these two terms or categories I found helpful as well, which was classical theism and neoclassical theism. Um, can you just briefly kind of, uh, you know, say what makes someone like a neoclassical theist compared to, to classical theism?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So what we're doing is we're looking at models of God. What a model of God is, it starts with a, the concept of God and then tries to flesh it out in a particular way. So the concept of God is that of a pr- absolutely perfect being who is the ultimate foundation of reality and what a model of god does is it tries to flesh out those two different claims in some sort of unique way so it's going to tell you in some kind of unique way what it means for god to be perfect and then some kind of unique way of what it means for god to be the foundation of reality so a classical theist what they do is they'll say god's got all those omni attributes we typically talk about like omniscience omnipotence he's an eternal being these kind of things it's not terribly interesting because everybody wants to say that so nobody owns the market on those attributes a classical theism is going to say, well, there's these four unique attributes, which are uh, timelessness, immutability, simplicity, and then imp- impassibility, which we've already defined. The, and then they'll want to say, though, that when it comes to God's omniscience, the modal scope uh, of omniscience, like all the things that God could possibly know, extends to the future. So God does know the future to some extent, uh, to whichever extent he's determined it, is, is basically the typical classical line. Uh, the neoclassical theist... They want to say okay cool god's got all the omni attributes and everything that's fine um but we want to deny one or more of those four unique classical attributes um but we're also going to agree that god does know the future we're going to agree with the uh, the, the, the modal scope of god's omniscience does extend to the future how you get that maybe god determines it maybe you're a molinist maybe you've got some weird uh, time ordering account you got get some options here but you know there's a, there's a way to kind of there's some stories you can tell to how to get it but they're going to say one of those unique attributes is, is going to be false and what i do in the book is i present uh, a a version of neoclassical theism that says all four of those attributes are false so instead of simplicity you've got god just being unified instead of god being timeless you're going to say god's temporal instead of god being immutable you're going to say well god can change in certain respects because he can go from not creating anything to I'll, I'll create some stuff if i want to you can't tell me what to do and then passable in the sense that well god god does have a range of emotions that fit with the situation at hand they're going to be perfectly rational and perfectly good depending on the situation and then he's going to have some kind of empathy again there's gonna be some debates there about how much empathy but that's 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 the neoclassical model in a nutshell though
1: nice well and so Ryan you you use two terms in your book that I I would love for you to kind of explain for us, please, uh, just to kind of uh, further the conversation. Uh, one would be the moral inconsistency criterion and the the rational inconsistency criterion. Could you talk about those for us?
2: Yeah. So these are things that people who affirm impassibility and passibility will agree on. So they're going to affirm that whichever emotions God has, they're going to have to be consistent with whatever his, makes God morally perfect and, and consistent with whatever you know is perfectly rational. So when you look at, say, like the early church fathers, they have these big disagreements over what counts as a passion because their word for passion doesn't exactly fit with our word for emotion. Our word for emotion covers a lot more stuff. Uh, so I use emotions and then these inconsistency criteria to just kind of sort through this mess. So here'd be an example. So like, uh, like lust and envy, like those are kinds of emotions. Um, and, and so most people in the early church would be like, well, God doesn't have those emotions. Cause that would be, that would just be like, that'd be kind of gross if he was lusting and and, 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 if he was having envy, like that's, that's just like not morally appropriate. It's not consistent with God's perfect, like a perfect morality would be the kind of the claim you'd see. And then like, say, um, you know, like, not like God's like angry, but God's like, like insanely, like just absurdly over the top, like really upset about something that you're just kind of like, that's a really trivial deal. Uh, the classical tradition. And then also people who want to affirm passability, they'll go, yeah, well, God's not going to have that. Cause that would be, that would just be inconsistent with being perfectly rational. Like God's emotional judgments are going to be the right amount of intensity for the right situation. God's not going to fly off the handle. So everybody wants to affirm these, these kind of things.
0: Yeah. Good deal. Well, thanks, man. So that was basically a bunch of helpful background information uh, for our conversation. Uh, so one thing that I think is, you know, comes up a, a decent bit is this idea of happiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to what extent can one argue that an impassable God experiences happiness? And you touched on this a little bit. Yeah. Um,
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'll flesh it out a bit more. So the, the classical claim, it really is like absolute perfect, undisturbed happiness, felicity, bliss, joy, all these really like superlative sort of like things like they want to say God has that to the maximal degree. And so let me like kind of piece out the argument a little bit more. So if you want to be happy, you want to be in the right relationship with the perfect good, whatever the greatest good is, the right relationship with that is what makes you happy. And since God is identical to the greatest good, he is the greatest good itself. Well, on the classical understanding, like, well, then he's just going to be perfectly happy. Uh, And the classical tradition wants to go a little bit further, though. They'll also say that if God, like, were to judge something else as worthy of his attention and worthy of him to act on behalf of, uh, to such an extent that he's, like, moved or influenced by that other thing, well, then he would not be making the right value judgment. So God would be irrational so say like you know like god's looking at like the three of us talking and he's like oh those poor fools they don't know what they're doing and he feels a little bit down about it well the classical church would be like well no that's god would be making like a false value judgment because he's he's seeing things as like having enough value to like move him from his perfect happiness and that would be like elevating uh like you know the three of us above his own like the greatest good and that doesn't make any sense so god can't do that so god's value judgments always have to be just he can only be moved by himself, the greatest good. He can't be moved or influenced by anything lesser than the greatest good. So he really can't be, like, disturbed in his happiness in any way, shape, or form.
0: Yeah, so basically, this is kind of the idea where, like, um, yeah, God God just finds ultimate glory and satisfaction within God's self. Like, mm-hmm. completely... Um, Inward focus sounds a bit harsh, but I guess completely inward focus, just everything. Well, No, it is by definition
2: inward focus because it is because he can't be moved or influenced by anything outside of himself to think, feel or act. And you see this really clearly when you look at different doctrines of providence, predestination in the classical Mm -hmm. tradition. Why does God do anything that he does for his own glory? Why does he love the stuff that he does? It's all self-love. It's, you know, it couldn't be be anything else because it'd be irrational if God loves something else because nothing has as much value as him.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so
2: yeah it really is inward focused it couldn't be anything else other than that
0: okay sweet yeah sounds good um all right so then how might one be able to so like that that's the impassable god how is a passable god different in regards to happiness
2: Mm-hmm. so when you look at um so i'll stick with like neoclassical theists and open theists because they're going to agree with the classical tradition that god creates ex nihilo and so what that entails is there's this state of affairs where god exists without the universe so you have got just god hanging out by himself doing nothing and going should i create or not i don't know maybe that'd be fun now what the people who affirm passability when they're looking at that moment they'll say god's pre-creation moment god is in a state of like like perfect happiness Um, when the classical tradition was to say, like, once God creates the universe, like he doesn't change. So he's going to continue to be perfectly happy. But the, the neoclassical and open theosco go, God kind of knows what he's getting into when he creates a universe. And he knows there's a real possibility that he's going to be sacrificing some of his happiness for a while, uh, emphasis on for a while, because at some point, um, he'll bring about his ultimate purposes and, and bring about whatever, which seems to be something like loving relationships with creatures, And so they'll be like, you know, perfectly happy again, but God would know going into it that if I create these beings, there's going to be some suffering in the world. There might be some sin and stuff in the world that's going to upset me. So he's not going to be perfectly happy throughout because he's going to have the right emotion that fits the right situation. So if there's sin and sickness and death in the world, he's going to be upset. If there's like some good things to rejoice about, like when, like, you know, when a sinner repents. God's going to be like, that's something worth rejoicing about. I'm happy again. So his, his emotions are going to really fit the situation at any given moment, but they're going to be, his emotions are gonna be changing. So he's not going to be in a state of pure undisturbed happiness because he really is being influenced by what you do and who you are.
1: Yeah. And so I, I attend a a charismatic style church and assemblies of God church. And, um, there's a, there's a lot of conversation around, um, you know, you know, when when someone, um, you know, begins to follow Jesus, there's a celebration in heaven. And when someone's baptized, you know, angels are celebrating, God's happy, God's celebrating and excited about that. It's not just a, you know, an even keeled, I don't care uh, mm-hmm. kind of response. Um, so I guess, you know, many, would, many people may even experience passability uh, throughout their regular walk often and probably not even know that, that they're experiencing something that, you know, theologians debate, you know, and that kind of a thing. Um, but, but I wanted to ask Ryan, um, to, so to what extent can one argue then that a passable God is omniscient?
2: And so this is where you get some different tricky parts here. Um, I think, okay, first I should say, I think there's a problem with omniscience as a whole, because there are certain things that every model of God I'm aware of says God cannot know. So a timeless God cannot know what time it is right now. Uh, because that would involve God changing. And so you're like, oh, okay, so God knows all the things, but he doesn't know what time it is right now. And, and, you know, like Augustine's like, yeah, that's right. Cause that'd be bad if he knew that. Cause then he would be changing. And like, okay. So you're allowed to say God doesn't know some stuff. Cool. Okay. Well, what about the passable God? Um, what all can he know? Um, well, it seems like there might be certain things that, that God couldn't know, like what it's like to be you. Uh, and, uh, impassibility comes along goes, haha. Well, I've got a story to tell you about how God can, can know what it's like to be you impassibility. You can't give that, but I can give you this story. Here's how it goes. Empathy. So if I empathize with you, I come to know what it's like for you to feel the way that you feel. And so something about you is, is the, is the basis. Like it's what grounds my ability to know what it's like for you to feel whatever it is you're feeling. Now, when uh, I do that, then I get an, I really do get like a good kind of understanding of like, this is what it's like to be Marty. This is what it's like to be Josh. And so then God would seem to have this kind of knowledge as well. If he's, if he has empathy, like the passibilist wants to say. And so like, Ooh, okay. seems like he's got more knowledge than, than this classical God, because the classical God has no empathy. So he can't have this knowledge of what it's like to be you. So it seems like, Ooh, okay. He's going to have more, but there's going to be these debates though, with amongst passibilists about how much empathy God has. Uh, so you've got on the one hand you've got someone like Linda Zagzebski who says God has omnisubjectivity, which is like this perfect total grasp of all creaturely conscious states. So everything that you feel, every mood that you're in, like every sort of experience you've had, God knows that with a perfect grasp. Whereas some other people like Keith Ward are gonna go, mm, God has a pretty good grasp of like ah of what it's like for you to feel different things, but like. Like if you feel like stupid, God kind of knows like a little bit of what it's like for you to feel stupid, but like he doesn't have a perfect grasp of it because we, God God just can't be stupid. Like, so like he just, so he's not really going to get it that well. Uh, what it's like to delight in torturing the innocent. Linda Zygzebski like, yeah, God's got a perfect grasp of that. Um, Keith Ward's going to be like, well, maybe not so much because uh, God's perfectly good. So he, he knows that for certain that that you really like delighting in your sins, but he's not going to have this like, perfect grasp of what it's like to delight in your sins so there's these weird kind of i guess all all that to say is like the classical tradition denies that god has certain kinds of knowledge the 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 neoclassical or open theists are going to say well i can get you some more knowledge here but they're uh, then like the classical god but they're going to have these debates about how much knowledge
0: yeah that's that's always interesting and one uh well two things come to mind. One. for me, the, like the incarnation comes into the conversation here. I feel like people will talk about um, the incarnation in whatever way you like to talk about that, that uh, mm-hmm. God, you know, kind of fly into reality or is, you know, Jesus an emergent property, whatever. Um, but the, the incarnation says something about God's ability to know and understand what it's like to be human. Um, and that kind of ties into this idea. And I, th- I think you made a really interesting point in your book that there's a difference between uh, just like ideological claims and experiential knowledge. Mm -hmm. And can you kind of talk about why that matters here in this conversation? Yeah.
2: So the distinction is between what's called, uh, the way philosophers talk about is what's propositional knowledge and then phenomenal knowledge. So propositional knowledge is knowledge that something is the case. And then phenomenal knowledge is, is, is like this experiential knowledge of like what it's like uh so i could tell you all about there's this there's this this place in finland called uh, uh, naughty burger and so the and which is really nice cuz like living in the uk the cheeseburgers there are are just awful they're not good but finland's got a good burger game and so naughty burger like i could tell you like a great detail all the details about like what it's like to have a naughty burger and and so then you would have all this propositional knowledge of like knowledge that this is a good cheeseburger and that it has like you know these kind of properties But that's very different than actually coming to Finland, going to Naughty Burger and going, yeah, give me that number two right there. I want that. And then actually taking a bite and knowing this is what it's like to eat a Naughty Burger. So those are two kinds of knowledge. So you could have all the propositional knowledge of like a perfect description of what it's like, uh, but you wouldn't have the experience of what it's actually like to eat a cheeseburger. And so these are two kinds of knowledge. This is pretty important because you experience this in like your day-to-day life. Uh, you constantly, you might be told about like, oh, this is so-and-so, this is what they're up to, but it's not the same as actually experiencing them and meet them for the first time because there's something, there's a kind of like you know, personal knowledge that you gain by having an actual acquaintance with this, with this individual. And so the big question is, well, if, if that's really like a common, very common kind of knowledge that all of us have, well, shouldn't God have that too? And when you look at the classical tradition, they're going propositional knowledge the only experiential knowledge God has is perfect happiness. And that's perfect happiness is just of himself. Does he have any experiential knowledge of you? Well, no, he couldn't. That'd be horrible. That'd be bad. Whereas the class, neoclassical and the open theist and others, they want to go, surely if I know this, this stuff about what it's like, if I have this phenomenal knowledge, if God's really all knowing, he better have that too. And so then you start to see this kind of more debate of going if I've got this phenomenal knowledge, then God better have it too. That pushes me towards passability. That pushes me towards God having empathy, pushes me towards saying God has some kind of suffering, you know, uh, and there's this wider range of emotions. So it really does really matter quite a bit to this dialectic of the debate.
0: Yeah. And it, for me, what's so interesting is, is um, just, you know, reading through, through your book and, and some other, um, you know, other books within a similar vein uh, it seems to me that like having a God who is passable um, actually expands God, not shrinks God. Whereas a lot of the times when I have conversations with friends who disagree with me, they'll say, no, your God is too small or, you you know, whatever. Um, but it, it just I don't know. It just kind of seems to be the the opposite for me, um, which is why I got pushed towards passability and, and open theism, um, which yeah. Then ties into this idea for me, I, you know, believe in experience God to be relational, um, which is an experiential type of knowledge. And you mentioned empathy, but for me in relationships, empathy seems to be kind of key, like really important. Um, and so to what extent does then a passable God possess empathy and what, what might that look like? Um yeah, comparatively to to perhaps a, a impassable God who cannot experience uh, the same kind of things.
2: Mm-hmm. So I'll I'll stick with uh, Linda Zagzebski's account of which again she calls it omni-subjectivity. So omni-subjectivity is this perfect capacity to have like what she calls maximal empathy. So like a So God has the ability to grasp all of your creaturely conscious states. So he knows exactly what it's like for you to feel everything that you feel. He knows exactly what it's like for you to be in whatever moods you're in. Any sort of like, you know, like experiential knowledge that you have, any sort of experience that you have, God knows, has a perfect grasp of that. And so Zygzepski is like, well, then what that entails then is that God has more knowledge than he would if he's impassable. And so, this is a kind of knowledge-based argument she runs. So, she's like, if you really want to have an omniscient God, then you need a passable God because he knows more. Uh, Whereas the classical tradition is very explicit going, God does not have any empathy whatsoever. Now, where it seems to matter in terms of like personal relationships, uh, it does does seem like it's a pretty big deal. Like if I don't have any empathy with you, then it's not clear we're going to be that close to each other because I don't have any knowledge of really what it's like for you to feel whatever you're feeling. And also when I have empathy, I also come to understand what it's like for you to like put different weight on certain values. So like, you know, how, how much value do you want to put on a cheeseburger versus how much value you want to put on your eight-year-old child? seems like you're going to have more value on your eight-year-old child. And if I empathize with you, then I can really understand like, this is what it's like for Marty to, you know, put this kind of emotional weight and this kind of value on, on his child. Another thing that I do want to empathize with you is I come to understand your reasons for your actions. I understand this is what it's like to be Marty, or this is what it's like to be Josh. And then I'm able to go, okay, well, based on this kind of understanding, I can see why you would perform this action instead of this other action. And so for Zeksepski, she's like, if God's going to be not just simply omniscient, but also going to be a perfect moral judge... Then God needs to have access to this kind of knowledge. He needs to be able to say, "This is what it's like for Marty to, to think and feel this way, and that's you know, the reason why Marty acted this way." Ooh, well, I feel very differently about the situation. I can't, Marty, I can't believe you did all that horrible stuff. What's wrong with you, scumbag? Um, but you know, because I understand these things, I can be a perfect judge here. Uh, so it was Zagzebski's like, "This is God in the situation. Like God's able to go. I have this perfect grasp of you, and therefore I'm able to actually judge you in the right sort of way, be it give you mercy or you know some kind of punishment or something." So for Zygzevsky here, she's like, this is the most personal of all attributes is what she says. It gives God more, more knowledge and it gives God a greater ability to be a moral judge. And then it really does seem like it kind of helps you fill out understanding of like really being in a personal relationship with somebody, whereas you really don't seem to be able to get any of that on impassibility.
1: Yeah. And, you know, um, it's, it, it, as we're talking about all of this, the, another attribute of God, that seems to be something that. Um, is impossible for me to ignore, um, is just God's love. Um, so can you can you compare and contrast how both camps talk about the love of God, recognizing that, to me, obviously, the, the preface to this is that empathy, to me, feels like love um, mm-hmm. in many ways. So I realize that it's kind of an obvious question following up on the last one, but I'd love to hear your perspective on that.
2: Yeah. Well, I, well first, let me tell you how you could have – uh, how empathy wouldn't necessarily lead to love. Um, so, so psychopaths, uh, they have, uh, empathy, but they have a deficit in the, the affective aspect of, of empathy. Like they understand like cognitively, like this is what you're feeling, but they don't really, uh, feel it with you. Uh, and so that makes them like, you know, a little bit more prone to, be manipulative. So they could empathize with you to the extent of like, this is what it's kind of like for Marty to feel this way. Um, but because of that, I know how to push his buttons and like really like torment him. So you could have the empathy and a love cup apart. Um, but it seems like they should go together, but so I'll get into that in a second. So love though, this is what was weird when I was doing research for this book. Everybody seems to agree that love involves these two desires, uh, a desire to like, you want what's best for the person you love. You know, so you want what you you want to will the good of the beloved is a technical phrase. And then you also want to will unity with the beloved, which just means you want to be like close to the people that you love. Not necessarily like physically close, but like, you know, have some kind of like real deep emotional relationships or like real like personal union with them. And and so what some people in the impassibility camp, what they were saying is, well, everybody's like ignoring that we affirm that God wants to be in a personal relationship with you, that he wants to be united with you. And I, and I, my first thought was, no, they're not. I've seen people attack this, but okay, sure. I'll grant you that nobody's attacked this. Um, So tell me your deeper story about how God gets this personal union with you. And then I'll explain to you why you can't have that. Uh, So that's, that's what I kind of do in the book. So the story is supposed to be something like this. Uh, In order to come to a closer relationship with you, to be united with you in love, I need to know all sorts of things about you, but just knowing things about you, doesn't mean I'm going to be close to you. Cause I could like read up all your, like, you know, your, your, your bio ahead of time and then just go screw you guys. I'm leaving. We're not going to be close. Right. So what I need to do is I need to also have some kind of understanding of this is who you are and what it's like for you, like some understanding of your perspective and then accept that perspective to some extent. Uh, and then you, in order, in turn, have to have the similar kind of experience. You have to go, this is kind of what it's like for to be Ryan. I accept these things about Ryan to some extent. Uh, and I'm willing to kind of like work with that and like, you know, to try to draw closer to each other. And so there's a whole lot more details to that, to that kind of analysis. But one of the things I, I noticed was uh, in Eleanor Stump's account, which I was really focusing on. She says the empathy is part of like, that's like one of the main ways you you do draw closer to someone. That's how you get the knowledge of this is what it's like for this other person to be this way. And this is how you gain the understanding. And she has this problem because she wants to say God's impassable. And so she's like, well, how does God get the, the empathy? And so she has to try to bring the incarnation in there. And then you end up only getting the human nature having empathy. You never get God having empathy. And so I'm like, well, that's, that's, that's a weird problem. But I just ignored that for the book. So I was like, okay. So if God's really supposed to draw closer to me, he needs to know what it's like to be me and he needs to have some kind of understanding of me. Well, if God's impassable, he couldn't have any of that. Why? Well, God's in a state of pure undisturbed happiness. It is impossible for him to experience anything else other than that. It's impossible for him to understand anything other than that. Whereas I might, I'm definitely not in a state like that. If you really want to know who I am, you need to know my happiness, my joys, but you also need to know my sorrows. You also need to know my anguish. You need to have some kind of understanding of those things. And if you can't possibly have an understanding of my agony, then you don't understand me. I mean, that sounds a very finished thing to say because it's all like gloom here, which is why they've got so much more heavy metal, which is also why I love it. But you know, if you can't understand my agony, then you do not fully understand who I am as a person. And if you're a God who cannot possibly suffer, cannot possibly be in a state of anything other than pure, undisturbed bliss, then you can't understand me. Full stop.
1: Hmm. Well, and I guess just to follow up to that, as you kind of segue us there. um, So to what extent can the God of impassibility, impassibility experience suffering and, and under and understanding that with through the lens of if Jesus suffered and and like what that looks like Mm
2: -hmm. So the incarnation. Yeah. Uh, So I've written on this, um, in my first book and then I've got a couple different papers. One that's about, that just got released um, I think last week. Uh, It's in this collection on Christ's uh, impeccability that Johannes uh, Grossel edited and it's through Rutledge. Anyway, um, so here's the idea of how the impassable God is supposed to be able to get some kind of empathy or somehow experience suffering. So we can't experience it in his divine nature because his divine nature can't suffer and is in a state of pure happiness. And so you look at God the sun and you're like, okay, so God the sun, you're a divine mind with a human nature and that divine mind and human, or sorry, a divine mind and divine nature cannot suffer. So how are you going to get the suffering? Well, here's the classical story. If the sun assumes a human nature, which is a soul and a body, well, then the sun has a human nature that does the suffering so, what you have in the traditional classical understanding of the incarnation is you've got the divine mind, which is in a state of pure and disturbed happiness, and then you've got this human mind of Jesus that is a soul and has a human body, and that soul is doing all the suffering. Now, they have their own first-person perspectives because the human mind can look to the divine mind and say, I don't know as much as you do, and the divine mind can say, yeah, that's right, you don't know as much as I do. And the human mind can say, "Ooh, man, I'm really, really hungry right now," or, you know, "I'm really like kind of, kind of suffering right now," like because I got these nails in my hands. Uh, and the divine mind can be like, "I'm in a state of pure, undisturbed bliss." And so you you can have this back and forth dialogue between the human mind and and the divine mind within Jesus. And so somehow this is supposed to give you one person that has a nature that suffers. Now. You might think two minds, each with their own wills, each with their own first-person perspectives that have wildly different experiences, like not possibly being able to suffer ever, and the other one in a state of agony on the cross, you might think that's two people, but then classical tradition will be like, well, no, 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 it's one person, it's one person. Of course, the Nestorians who say it's two people will go, yeah, that's right, yeah, God's the divine mind is in the state of pure, undisturbed bliss, and the human mind is doing all the suffering, two people. What's the difference between the two? ineffable mystery it's a mystery as to how you know these two natures are one person and the Nestorians didn't want to play the mystery card um i don't want to play the mystery card either so i want to go your view looks like it's Nestorian. um so i don't understand how you have one person in christ it looks like you've got two people in christ whereas the passable tradition they, they've got an easy job here they can just be like well yeah like god could suffer beforehand i don't need to like take on this other soul that does the suffering for me i could just well, if I've been suffering in the past, I'll, I'll suffer again with you guys now, like in this uh, human nature, like it's much easier, much more like elegant kind of story to tell.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like the ease of it too. That's nice.
2: <laughs> it's always nice when your yeah. views don't just naturally give rise to all these puzzles and conundrums. It's, it's, yeah, it's nice when you can get it.
0: Yeah. And, and also too, when it just, and again, I don't want to try to bash anybody, but when it just, you know, people often talk about like, oh, you know, just a plain reading of the text in regard to scripture. And if you have a quote, plain reading of the text, it sure as hell looks like God suffers and is passable. Um, and then, you know, people who say those kind of things um, often will be get you know, accused of like not having a high view of scripture or something like that. Um, when in reality, it just seems kind of be like, well, that's seems like what we kind of find there. Um, and instead, like we have this, you know, uh, Greek philosophy, like, that were like importing and then trying to make that line up with scripture instead of the other way around. Um, at least that's how I see it. I could be wrong. I'm not a philosophical theologian and I am self-trained. So <laughs> um, yeah, but one thing, uh, a contradiction I want to point out and I was so happy to see you actually did it in your book. And I was like, yes, uh, maybe I was actually onto something here. Um, in my experience, those of my friends who push for impossibility, also are really, really big on the wrath of God, like really big on it. But for me, that doesn't make sense because how can a God who is not influenced by anything outside of God's self in any meaningful way be said to have wrath directed towards anything aside from God's self? (laughs) Like, it just, it doesn't make sense to me. And, and you kind of brought that up in your book.
2: Yeah, that was one that, as I was studying this, it really stood out to me. Uh, and I hadn't seen any like interesting discussion on this in the past. So I was, I was, I was like, okay, let's, let's see how we can make this problem as difficult as possible. And so what I start out in that chapter is going, okay, let's look at some people who really want to affirm impassibility. What do they say about God's wrath? And they're like, it's God's absolute moral detestation at sin. You know, God just finds it repugnant. You know, and he, he feels indignation towards all these things. And so we get this like really like, well, very biblical kind of description of of God's uh, wrath. So he's feeling indignation every day, just like the like the proverbs say. Okay, cool. Well, hang on. I thought God was in a state of like pure undisturbed bliss. And you'll find some theologians go, "Well, right, 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 right. He's got happiness and he's got wrath, but it's a kind of happy wrath where he's still perfectly happy. Um his anger doesn't disturb his happiness." And you might go, "Well, happy wrath just sounds stupid on the surface. Like that can't possibly be right." And then be like, "Well, you know, you know, sometimes like it, you feel really happy when you're when you're like getting your wrath out at somebody." And I'm like, "Okay, I've had that experience, but I've also had the exact opposite. I don't, surely this can't be like the entirety of of wrath, but okay, cool. Um, Also, happy wrath doesn't seem like it really fits with the description of like detestation and uh, (laughs) like these kind of like really strong sort of words. So you're like, okay, this seems weird. Here's another thing that makes it weird though. Uh, So when you look at the, when the impassibility uh, tradition, when they're trying to be consistent, they'll say things like our sins, be they ever so many have no influence on God our wretchedness, your state of wretchedness, like it could never influence God in any way. His wrath is completely uninfluenced. And you're like, why? Oh, right. Because impassibility says God can't be influenced. And so you have to ask the question, God, why are you mad? Like, what's going on there? Like, why are you mad, God? You can't be my sins. Uh, whew, okay. Because like, they you know you influencing you. So who are you mad at? And so you've got two kind of things, two kind of problems here. One is how can you really like capture like the the affective component of wrath, like the real feelings that go along with wrath because it seems like that doesn't fit with uh, perfect happiness. And then also why is God having this, this emotion? Why is God having wrath? Because it can't be because of something I've done. And the best responses that I've seen are to go, well, all those biblical passages, they definitely say that God's passable. And so the, the classical tradition is really clear on that. They're like, yeah, it definitely goes that way. We got to explain it away, though. We got to explain what, like why God would reveal himself in this way. And then he's like, well, because you're too stupid to understand impassibility. So God has to reveal himself in terms of, of, of being passable. You are like, okay, fine, fine. I'll take the insult, but sure, keep going. Why is God mad? Uh, well, like, he's not really, like, feeling angry because he's in a state of perfect happiness. Um, but when these passages, when they're talking about God feeling anger, what it really means is, like, this is how God responds to you when you sin, and I'm like, okay, so he doesn't really have the feeling of, of anger. That's fine. That's fine. But wait, you said he responds to me. You said that's what the Bible's teaching, that he responds to me? Well, no, you told me that my sins, be there ever so many, have no influence on God. He can't respond to me in any, in any way. Like, Okay, so you didn't really explain away these biblical passages in a way that's actually consistent with impassibility. So what I, what I do in the book is I try to tease that out in a much more like logically concise way. But what you get at the end of the day is you still have their own interpretations of scripture entail God being influenced. He's being caused to like punish you because of your sins. Otherwise, he's just going to be acting utterly arbitrarily. And so like, I'm just like, this is, doesn't fit with God's perfect rationality either. So you've got some problems here. There's some kind of contradictions going on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then I know just from conversation, um, I have friends that if they're listening right now, they're screaming this idea that all of it is just metaphor. Like God doesn't actually have emotions. God doesn't have a brain. He doesn't have the, you know, neural processes. It's all just metaphor. So this is a silly conversation. Mm-hmm. Do you have any any thoughts about yeah,
2: that? Um... <laughs> What that statement is, is it completely contradicts the actual classical tradition. And so one of the things I have to do a lot in my public work, um, like when I'm engaging with more public audiences go, well, you said you wanted to be a classical theist. Maybe you should actually affirm what the actual classical tradition affirms if you want to be a classical theist. I don't know, man, yeah, you know, the consistency, I guess, is a thing you could try for. And so when you look at the actual classical tradition, they do affirm that God has these emotions of pure happiness and then there's a debate over whether or not he has the emotion of wrath you've got some people saying yes he has wrath some people saying no he does not have wrath Uh, so they don't think it's actual metaphor because they think that some emotions are cognitive and can be rational and that's fine happiness bliss felicity that's one of them uh wrath You know, a bunch of Calvinists say, "Yeah, yeah, he better have that because otherwise, he's he's not really like a morally perfect judge." And if you want to deny, this is like this is one of this stuff I actually love when I saw some different Calvinist preachers do this. They'd say, "If you want to deny that God actually literally has wrath, then there's something morally disgusting about you. You're not wanting to submit to God's actual absolute perfect holiness. So what's wrong with you, you horrible horrible human, that you don't want to accept God's perfect wrath?" And I'm like, "Okay, so fine." Tell me how you can have wrath that's consistent with impassibility. Um, then I'll accept this, you know, then I'll stop being a sinner. And, you know, um, well, probably won't help me stop sinning. But, you know, like, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, and, and so I guess what I'm hearing you say, Ryan, is that um, the, the poster man or poster child of of all of one of, or I guess I'll say one of the poster childs of Calvinism and Jonathan Edwards, uh, he got passibility right when he wrote Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God
2: you would think yeah yeah
1: yeah Yeah. um well i guess to just to kind of continue the conversation you you kind of set us up real well um it seems like uh the argument um against passability for many people is that that a passable god is not trustworthy to make moral argue or arguments um can you kind of lay out this argument for us and then kind of tell us how this kind of fits with and, and how a passable god might respond to that
2: so i i mainly focused on some different protestant scholastics uh, for this argument because i was just bored of uh interacting with um some of the medieval thinkers and also i wanted to not quote aquinas uh like at all really in this book so that way people could would stop saying you just need to read more aquinas or you misunderstood him i'd be like i don't remember citing him in this book so i focused on like protestants uh, for, for a lot of this and so there's this constant argument you see where it says like well look your emotions your judgments that are based on emotions, those are really kind of like fleeting, like passing sort of things. Um, like you know, when you're like, when you get mad at your kid for doing whatever. Well, I don't know because I don't have kids, but I'm assuming like Marty, you've maybe had this experience. Like you get mad at your kid, and then you're like, oh, you know, I, I overreacted. Like I was, I didn't see, like foresee, like really, like this was the case. Like I was just basing kind of like from this emotional place. Every and day, like, yeah, every day, <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. And so, so the Calvinist is going to say like, well, look, if God's judgments are like that. Well, that's really horribly unreliable. You really want God to just kind of like fly off the handle and then like like a couple of years later go, oh man, you know, I didn't, I'm sorry. I didn't really like think it through very well. I didn't really see that coming. Um, you know, I, I, I now in hindsight, like I, I really regret making that kind of judgment on you. Well, that just sounds like a really silly God. That's not a good God. That's not a perfectly good, just judge. And so I'm like, okay, cool. That's a, that's a decent argument, I guess. Unless you look at what the actual models of God say uh so these alternative models of god so like a neoclassical theist is going to say well god does know the future how does he know it well the same way the classical theist will say you could have god determining everything so you can have a calvinist or you be a mobilist and say like god you know looks at all the possible worlds and goes i like that one that one's cool so god's got a perfect knowledge of the future and his judgments they're going to fit the situation perfectly because he's always perfectly rational he's always perfectly good And it's not like he's going to go, oh, crap, I didn't, oh, man, like, I didn't see that coming, you know, a few years down the line, like, he's going to kind of go, whew, I really made a bad call back there. Well, no, because he knows the future perfectly. So he's not going to be subject to these sorts of things. But you might say, well, what about that open theist, though? Because I I don't think God knows the future. You know, maybe, like, God could really screw things up, like, really bad, like, you know, like, uh, like, he could, like, look down the line and be like, oh, that that judgment I made a thousand years ago, (sighs) I, I really, I really screwed that one up. Well, I think the open theist can make some several different kinds of moves. Here's one kind of move. The open theist says that God has a perfect knowledge of everything that's happening right now, everything that's happened in the past, and then knows all the possible things that will happen in the future and has a, an exhaustive contingency plan for everything that will happen in the future. And so, so you might be like kind of scared of like a uh, different AI, um, like getting all your data. For like you know, like because they may like manipulate you to to like vote a particular way or like or like uh, you know buy certain things. Well, if you're scared of that, well, you should really really scared of the open theist god too, because he's got way more knowledge to make like even more like kind of predictions of like how to like maneuver things around. So it seems like the god of open theism, he's going to know w- well more than enough to be able to like really accurately judge the situation and really go like if I make this move, this is what's what could possibly happen in the future, or if I make this other move, that's what's going to happen in the future. I kind of lose my grasp on how a God like that would a thousand years later kind of look back and go, man, I really screwed that up. Didn't I? Um, So I think these are the kind of moves that different models of God can make in response to this to go, how really are you going to get this claim that God like screws up his judgment? It doesn't seem like it quite fits.
0: Yeah. Good deal. Um, So something that you had mentioned earlier that I kind of shelved and want to bring back um, is, I mean, it, it ties into the idea that we've already talked about with, with empathy um, and, and the idea that God can feel kind of different emotions. And, you know, sometimes someone, you know, people say things like, Oh, you know, God can feel all the emotions that you do. And that's used as kind of like a comforting thing, which sounds nice at first. Um, but then you point out in your book, uh, and I, I actually laughed out loud and I read it to my wife and I was like, see, philosophy of religion books can be funny sometimes. Um, but it talked about this idea, brought up this idea. OK, well, then does God get horny? That's weird. So, like, does God get horny if God right. has these things like empathy?
2: <laughs> yeah. So this was the horny God objection. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I love and some, it. Yeah. Best objection.
0: Some, horny God objection. It's such a good one.
2: And I never seen anybody like <laughs> really develop it that well. And, and my wife was like, "You really gonna go for that?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm going for it." She's like, "All right, all I right, That's well, fun." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then um, my wife and I we created this uh, the stand up comedy show for um, the Edinburgh International Fringe Festival. Uh, and so we got this like sold out audience where we're doing the stand up comedy show called uh, "Is God a Psychopath?" And So we had a debate with the audience that I did, and um, and so I'm running objections to each model of God and seeing kind of how the audience thinks about it. And so when I came to the horny God objection like the objection is supposed to kind of make people go, something's creepy about this. If God feels everything that I feel, then he feels my horniness. Do you really want a God that feels horny? And I remember this one woman in the audience going, oh yeah, that sounds cool. Like I definitely worship a God like that. And I'm like, okay, all right. So people's intuitions are kind of all over the place. So you've got someone like this in my audience who's like, yeah, yeah, a horny God, that's totally fine. It's not creepy in the slightest. And then, then you've got someone like my friend Chad McIntosh who's like, no, that, that feels really creepy. So here's how to develop the objection. And then I'll tell you the way Chad uh, re, uh, objects to Linda Zygzebski and then how Linda Zygzebski responds to Chad McIntosh. So you might be able to develop the objection like this. You could say, if God feels everything that I feel, then some feelings that, uh, might be irrational. So I mentioned like feeling stupid earlier. Um, so it really makes sense for God to feel stupid. And then horniness, it's not clear to me that like horniness would be like morally inappropriate because it kind of depends on the situation, but something seems like it's in the neighborhood of something being morally inappropriate. But you could also say like, well, what about like, you know, delighting in sin or like a sadist who really delights in torturing their innocent victim? Well, that's morally inappropriate. So if God knows what it's like to delight in sin and, and delight in torturing the innocent, then that's morally inappropriate. Well, the passibilists, they said, Hey, God's emotions are always in line with his perfect rationality and his perfect moral goodness. Well, I just gave you a set of emotions that are irrational and morally inappropriate. What are you going to do? And then also, you know, this one horniness that's, if it's not, if it's not inappropriate or irrational, it's, it's creepy. It's creepy. It feels wrong. So Chad McIntosh, uh, in his uh, book review of Linda Zygzebski's Omni Subjectivity, like he, he actually like emailed her and said like, okay, so you're saying that God knows exactly what it's like for me to have sex with my wife. Like that just feels really creepy, really wrong. And Zagsepski's response is, get over it. Just get over it. And that really tickled me. But she's got some some moves to kind of back it up, though. So she says, look, when you empathize with someone, you do understand exactly what it's like for them to feel that way. But you can disagree with the content of their emotion. And then also, when you empathize with someone, that's the basis for your own kind of emotional reaction. So when you're watching a movie, uh, and and it's like a really evil character on screen... Sometimes like, like, like some of the Marvel movies, like the way like Thanos is portrayed, you do kind of like get a feeling of like why he's doing the things that he's doing. Like he does really see it as like the good thing to do. And you do feel that to some extent. But when you empathize with him, you're like, that's what it's like for Thanos to feel that way. And so you do feel with Thanos, like, you know, that he feels like he's doing the right thing, but that serves as the basis for your own judgment on the situation. So you can go, that's what it's like for Thanos to feel that way. And that's just wrong. And I feel really awful about this. So you can have your own judgment on the situation. And so Zygzepski's like, yeah, God has all these emotions. He feels absolutely everything that you do. But then he, that's the basis for him to judge you properly and go, you feel that way. That's kind of gross. Uh, I'm going to disagree and feel this other way about the situation. So that's that's the way Zygzepski tries to get out of like the like the horny God objection. Or at least the way she could. She doesn't really deal with the horny God objection. She deals with like like uh, some other morally inappropriate emotions. But I was the, one of the few people to go. Like, let's really talk about the horny god objection. Like, just full, fully through.
0: Yeah, well, I, I appreciate your willingness to to discuss the horny the horny god objection. <laughs> but I think too, and I, I didn't, I didn't thought about this before. But as you were just speaking, um, something that came to mind is like within scripture. Uh, I know it's it's again, it feels creepier weird to, to think about it, but it uses this language of like knowing God, and like that is a very like intimate kind of like almost like euphemism that it is used as a euphemism for sex within scripture and then used in the same way so like i don't know that that just that was just an idea that sparked that came to mind like scripture seems like Mm -hmm. maybe there's something there but i don't know I didn't
2: tease. I didn't. I decided not to go into that in the book because the book had to be really short, so I had to cut out a lot of stuff, sure. including a lot of stuff on scripture. But that was a thought I had as well. Of when you look at like this, this Hebrew word like "yada," like it is used to talk about people having sex. Like, and then he knew her, uh, mm-hmm. and then it's also but like, and then God knew you, but it was without that kind of like very white sort of way of saying it, you know. But it's yeah. the same word being used, and so it's right. like it's, it is this intimate personal knowledge that's had, and so you're like, okay. So it's not just purely propositional knowledge. It's some kind of experiential knowledge that's going on here in scripture, at least.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, picture Borat in the background reading and being like, <laughs> nice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Ryan, I think we have like one, maybe two more questions for you. But um, mm-hmm. so I've had conversations uh, not about the horny God, but uh, about just the the, the concept of um, God being able to experience our emotions or not experience our emotions with people before. And one of the pushbacks that I've heard people ask um, and kind of just declare is sort of like the end of the conversation um, is that we're basing all of this around our own ability to have logic and to think through things, but that God being God, doesn't need to live within the realm of even the wisest person on earth's logic. Um God can kind of live within his own realm and he can, he can do things like God is capable of moving, of creating a rock so big that not even he can move it. Like God is capable. Mm. The answer is yes. And yes. And there is no, I mean, God is capable of everything and anything, and there is nothing that can stand in his way. Uh, so what do you say to the person that says God doesn't need to live within the logic that we create. Like, so just around this topic, but then just, I guess, in, in general. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I find this a really odd way of talking because, um, A, I don't think logic's created. It's not something we create. I think it's something we discover. Same thing with mathematics. Like, I don't create mathematical objects. At least I don't think I do. And I don't think my friends who have PhDs in mathematics, I don't think they're creating mathematical objects. I think they're discovering the laws of math. And I think what these laws do is they reflect either the nature of God or they're just, they just are the way that they are. Uh, the second thing I guess is if I don't have this sort of understanding of logic, then it's, uh, well, it seems like that's just, just it's unbiblical because scripture says there's certain things God can't do. He can't tell a lie. He can't sin. I'm like, well, if he's outside of the realm of logic, then yeah, he can. He can do that. He can sin. He can tell, he can tell a lie all day long. Uh, maybe the, all of the Bible is just one big lie. Uh, but maybe it's also a lie, and it's all true. Uh, and so T.J. Mawson gives this example of saying, like, you get to heaven, and then God's like, "I told you if you were good, um, you know, like you'd get here." Uh, but I'm actually going to send you all to hell, uh, and I can do that because I can do contradictions. It's fine. Uh, so I'll damn me and save you at the same time. There we go. Uh, and you're like, "Ooh, that's that's that that doesn't feel right." Uh, so I think what we're doing when we do this is a we're we're not being biblical. B. I don't think we're being reasonable. C. We're actually going against what the entire Christian tradition says. So if you want to be a classical theist and they're all very, very big on God not doing logical contradictions. And then fourth and finally, I think this sort of approach puts an end to all conversations in, the, in theology. So anybody who doesn't like my model of God, that's fine. Give any objection you want to it. Anything, I don't care. Bring up anything you want. And I could just go, yeah, God could do that too. That's fine, I don't care. He's outside of logic. And you're like, well, he can't have all these emotions. Be like, yeah, he can. He's outside of logic. He can have whatever emotion he wants. He could be as horny as he wants because he's outside of your created logic. So it so what it prevents is any real meaningful dialogue. Uh, we can't advance our our understanding of God if we if if anything goes anything and everything and nothing all goes.
1: I find that that response tends to come from the people um, that are uncomfortable with whatever you're coming up with, whatever <laughs> sort of logic you're you're working through. It's not that they it's not that they hear what you're saying and they don't understand or they just disagree. It's that they're uncomfortable because it, it, it flies in the face of whatever they may have already predetermined about God um, or just about a deity at all, whatever their deity may be. Um, so, yeah, I just was interested to see, cause you, I, I figured that there would be in these types of conversations you've had someone asking the question, okay, but like, you know, can't we just pretend like God can do whatever he wants anyway? So
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I, I love that language too. how you, you talk about um, us like discovering logic or something like that, because uh, it just I mean, that fits and makes sense to me, especially, um, you know, with my interest in wanting to be like intellectually, you know, humble and honest as well. And so if we're having like these different discoveries within science and all that kind of stuff, I want to be able to have a God that um "Quote unquote" can keep up with science, but it's not that that I'm changing God to keep up with oh what man is saying. But it's rather wow, look, we're actually we're catching up to to understand God better than we had mm-hmm. in the past. And so I, I don't know, I just I like that that uh, language used. They're discovering logic or discovering mathematics that's that's helpful to me just yeah personal as, as
2: i see science as i see theology it's this idea of i'm thinking god's thoughts after him i'm trying to get caught up to where god is and going what is god like well i have to look and see what he's revealed to himself in the book of nature and in the book of scripture what do i discover there uh oh i don't know sometimes i have to really think really hard about it and sometimes it takes me a while to figure out based on what i'm seeing um and so yeah it's a constant journey of discovering what god is like mm.
1: Yeah, yeah. I really like that thinking God's thoughts after Him. That mm-hmm. that really seems. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It just it seems to answer a lot of questions about. I I think even if just within that one sentence, you know, that one fragment of a sentence, even that, you know, helps people to see. You know, you're not you're not thinking anything new. You're like, you, you aren't, you're not, you're not that good <laughs> or right. that smart where you're coming up with something and God's like, Hey, you know, I never thought of it that way. <laughs> like yeah. God has already thought of all of that. You're just simply thinking that after him, because of the wisdom that he has provided you with mm-hmm. and the ability to research and think and discern. And then all the people that came before you have to put that information together into certain ways. And now you're thinking of it in the way that makes sense to you. But God isn't surprised by that. <laughs> like, no. He's not like, oh, wow, I can't believe that, like, someone thought of me that way. Like, that's different. I never even thought about that. Good job, man. Like, God's not doing that. So
2: No, no. So it's kind of humbling. Because even if you do think God doesn't know the future, he still has, he knows all the possibilities. And so he's not going to be surprised. Right. And he knows all the probabilities, too, as well, of, like, what you'll most likely do. And so it's, yeah, he's like, eh, keep thinking after me. That's right. Yeah. 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 Get in your yeah. lane.
0: Yeah, I like yeah. that. And also, too, is it like, and this again, this is just off the, the top of my head here. Is this, would it be weird then to talk about God as almost like uh, this thing that it seems like most people <laughs> are pursuing um, and trying to understand how, you know, the universe works and things like you're saying, logic and mathematics, whatever it is, this thing that we're all trying to quite kind of figure out is is God um, to some extent. Like, is that too weird? I'm not fleshing that out well. I'm trying to to get my thoughts around that, but it, mm-hmm. it seems like we're, it's almost like stepping into this this stream of something of a, of a, I don't know, I don't have words for it. It's like an infinite thing, but like, do you, yeah. do you see what I mean?
2: I do. There's two ways you can go with it. One, you could be a pantheist and say that the universe is identical to God. Right. So, it really is the case that, when you're doing science, somehow you are studying the divine nature, um, which is going to be a big surprise to to my wife when, cause she's, when she's doing biology, when she's looking in the, under the microscope, she's not, she, she's, she's like, I'm not, I'm not looking at God. I'm looking at, I'm just looking at, at proteins on DNA. And I'm like, okay, yeah. that's fine. The other, the other way to go would, um, would be all the other models of God where you're saying that, look, God is the ultimate source of all possibilities. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he's the source of all the things that are actual. And so what we're doing is we're looking at the kind of world that he's created. And so we're looking at the product, the effect, the artifact of, of a divine act, uh, which does tell us something about God, because we're looking at the kind of thing that God create created. Um, so we're trying to understand God's thoughts of what kind of universe he wanted to create. And, and then also, why did he create this kind of universe? Mm. So when we're doing logic, when we're doing math, when we're doing any kind of empirical science, when we're doing psychology, we're all looking at what kind of universe did God create? And then when we're doing theology, we're trying to answer some questions like, why did God create a universe like that? What kind of God would create this sort of universe? What were the reasons? What was his purpose for this? And then that can lead us into questions about ethics, questions about how we ought to live. Uh, so it leads us in all sorts of other directions. But yeah, we're we're reflecting on the mind and actions of God.
0: Cool. Yeah, so then I guess you could take, uh, you know, something that I find um at least somewhat attractive, like the idea of Christian panentheism, where it's not pantheism, but rather, you know, I I find a helpful way to talk about It's like God is the universe plus something else. Like that kind of fits um, as well. Maybe
2: panentheists are super vague. I've actually got two papers I've published in the past going like, you guys are so vague, you can't like actually say anything meaningful. Yeah. Um, But uh, then I'm actually working on another paper, I think right now, where I've been asked to defend the panentheist position and say like, should we want God, a panentheist God to exist? And I'm like, I can give you some reasons. I don't necessarily like them all, but so here's what I think a panentheist has to say. They have to deny the, the doctrine of creation out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Instead, they have to affirm that God has to create a universe of some sort. So he's always existed with a universe of some sort. So God and creation are always co-eternal.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Maybe he's always existed with a different universe. And then this one eventually came along. Maybe he's always existed with a multiverse. You know, you've got some options here, but God always has to exist with some kind of created thing of some sort beyond that i can't figure out what on earth uh these other panentheists are saying other than lots of metaphors and then lots of metaphors that are often taken from classical theism and so i'm like cool god's imminent and transcendent everybody affirms that so what are you saying that's unique and they're like well god's temporal and i'm like well so does the open theist they say that yeah. too uh god has empathy i'm like well I mean, linda's accepts he's like she says she's a classical theist but she rejects this i'm like okay you're a neoclassical theist i'm like okay well cool neoclassical theist is God. Passibility. i've got omni subjectivity Ooh, you know that's all the the empathy you'd want so the the only unique claim that i can find really from panentheism is denying creation ex nihilo and affirming some kind of eternal creation sure so everything i've said today when with regards to emotions fits with that but then i can also identify a bunch of panentheists who affirm impassibility and deny that god has empathy too so I don't know if, if yeah, so I, I don't think pantheisms they don't own the market on empathy, I guess.
0: Yeah, no, that's good. That's really helpful. Um, yeah, that's super helpful. Thank you.
2: Yeah. Well, man,
1: Ryan, like this is this has got to be, if not the densest podcast we've ever had, one of the most dense podcasts we've ever had. I, uh, I'm just, uh, I'm very um, impressed is the weird word because it sounds condescending, but I'm just very impressed with you. Um, and like your your knowledge and what you bring to the table uh, for faith and, and just in general. Um, so thank you for being a part of the conversation with us today and uh, I, I think our listeners would would definitely agree that they're blessed to have listened to this uh, it's just as i have been um where where can people find you how can people interact with you uh, if they have questions if they want to ask you a ridiculous, um logic questions to try to stump you i guess is Mm -hmm. (laughs) that
2: which they won't do (laughs) no no, i've had a couple people do that or if they want to send uh recommendations for different metal bands i get that a lot too which is always nice nice. um so if you go to rtmullins.com i mean that's my website and then uh my my podcast the reluctant theologian podcast um you can find on all the major podcast platforms so those are the main ways to to follow my work i'm on twitter and i'm also on I don't want to be on Twitter because it's a it's a dumpster fire, but I'm on there, um, and I'm also on Facebook, so people can uh, join the Reluctant Theologian uh, podcast Facebook group as well. So those are the main ways to follow me, and I'm always on doing different YouTube videos as well. And you can find most of those links uh, to my to my website as well.
1: Nice. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you've interacted with um, most most true metal fans wouldn't call Dream Theater a metal band, but you may have interacted with them quite a bit. That's that was sort of my that was my musical upbringing. Mm-hmm. The time i became a drummer was listening to mike Portnoy and being like mm. i have to be able to play like that
2: <laughs> there you go there you go yeah so
0: yeah good deal all right well um ryan this was great i i was telling marty before this you know happened i was like yeah dude this uh tickles my nerd fancy i didn't that's a nice way of saying it i actually said something more in lines with the horny god objection <laughs> um But we don't have to talk about that. But I love these kind of conversations. (laughs) And also, Marty, if you really want to have your mind blown, we'll have to have Ryan back so we can talk about the idea of time. Because that by itself is crazy. And then bringing in God with it too. Um, And uh, I was talking to, I asked Tom Ord. So Tom is a friend of ours. And I asked Tom one time a question about time. He was like, yeah, um, I'm going to direct you to Ryan because he's the guy to ask. And so that's kind of how I first encountered you. So Tom, once again, thanks for, yeah. for hooking us I up. I actually, I've, and, I've actually uh, interacted
1: yeah. with Ryan um, on time before at a, um, at a presentation he gave when I was in Florida, Josh, this is before your Florida time, but uh, Ryan talked about that um, in what was called a seminary level course, but I'm sure Ryan had to give like, you know, less than 1% of his knowledge and wisdom and uh, theory on that for that course in order for it to even be like remotely, Passable for that place. That I'm. I'm being extremely vague because, I, like, on purpose. Like,
2: <laughs> yeah. No, I understand. I understand.
1: Yeah. Yes. You're being correct. polite, but, but it was. It yeah. was wonderful. It was super interesting. Uh, I loved every minute of it. Um. And I remember being there, thinking, like, man, like this is just like, this is this is amazing. And then about a year later, thinking to myself, that guy, that guy was way smarter than like, <laughs> what, what what these people do here. So, yeah, I
0: I would love to talk about cotton time. That'd be awesome. Yeah, sounds good sweet good deal all right man well then we'll just have to have yeah. you back it's official i'm thing. happy with that <laughs> sweet yeah good deal and and listeners we'll link all of those things in the show notes for you so you can uh also get in contact with ryan um his podcast is awesome ryan i'm a fan of your show so thank you for doing that um actually marty our buddy curtis was on uh ryan's podcast oh, nice. recently. we love curtis, yeah. curtis yeah 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 so that's cool but yeah so um listeners as always thanks for for hanging out with us today ryan thanks for hanging out and uh go caps
1: and we'll say go blackhawks and go finland
0: there we go (laughs) yeah finland Mm -hmm. and metal and metal (laughs) thanks guys all right guys